Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. My name is Angela Saylor, and I am the Vice President of the Edwin J. Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our President, Kay Coles-James, it is my great pleasure to welcome you and to thank you for your participation. We are looking forward to an engaging panel, and toward that end, we again invite you to send questions throughout the event so that we can respond and get you directly involved in this important discussion. You know, America's constitutional order is under great stress and the breakdown in respect for our institutions and government, the academy and the media has helped to instigate a season of violence and social unrest. Another civil war, the struggle over the meaning of America, this webinar, will address with historical insight and with a deep appreciation for the achievements of the American constitutional order. Our aim today is to be among the first to help frame this very important discussion, to be sober about the challenges we face as a nation, but to ratchet down the hysterical rhetoric. Today, you will be reminded that the American Constitution was brought into existence during a time of supreme national crisis. Indeed, the framers designed the Constitution to weather the storms of faction and unrest. Our experts will make clear that the way forward in many respects demands that we look back to the Constitution and the principles of self-government that it embodies. When Benjamin Franklin was asked after a session of the Constitutional Convention, what kind of government have you given us? He replied, a democracy if you can keep it. Our Republic is founded on the principles that it will continue only as long as the people keep democracy alive. One of our featured guests, Dr. Alan Gelsel puts it, now is the time to remember what an extraordinary land it is we live in how this Republic has survived over and over against stains and stresses that monarchs and dictators prophesized would destroy it. I'd like to welcome our distinguished experts to the screen as we prepare for our discussion about the state of the nation and what these developments mean for America. So panelists, please join me on the screen. I'm gonna introduce you to each of them and uh, again, I want you to get your questions ready and put them in the queue so we can get you involved in this important discussion. Dr. Alan Galzo is a senior research scholar in the Council of Humanities at Princeton University and director of the James Madison Programs Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship. Galzo is an acclaimed scholar of American history whose writings have been recognized as among the most important contributions to scholarly and public understanding of 19th century America. His book, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, received the 2000 Lincoln Prize, as well as the 2000 Book Prize of Abraham Institute of the Mid-Atlantic. 
His Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the end of slavery and American emancipation, and his Gettysburg, the last invasion, also received the Lincoln Prize in 2005 and 2013. Gelzo is also a leading authority on the life and thought of Jonathan Edwards, and he is the winner of the 2018 Bradley Prize. Gelzo earned his PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania, and he also holds an honorary doctorate of history from Lincoln College. Next, I wanna introduce you to Dr. Sam Gregg, who's research director at Acton Institute. He has written and spoken extensively on questions of political economy, economic history, ethics and finance and natural law theory. He has a master's degree from the University of Melbourne and a doctor of philosophy degree in moral philosophy and political economy from the University of Oxford. Sam oversees Acton's research program and team of scholars and is responsible for oversight of research and international programming. And he is also the author of 13 books. In 2001, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and in 2008, he was elected a member of the Philadelphia Society and member of the Royal Economic Society. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Sam Gregg. And last but not least, my colleague, Dr. Joe Laconte, who is the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies and AWC Family Foundation Fellow. Prior to arriving at the Heritage Foundation, Joe held the position of Associate Professor of History at the King's College in New York City, where he taught courses on Western civilization, American foreign policy, and international human rights. He is a scholar on John Locke and the religious influences on the development of liberal democracy. Joe is the author of the New York Times bestseller, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, how J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis rediscovered faith, friendship, and heroism. He is currently producing a documentary film series based on the book, and the film trailer can be found at hobbitwardrobe.com. Joe's commentary on religion and public life has appeared in the nation's leading media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post National Affairs, and the national interests. For 10 years, he's also served as a commentator for the National Public Radio's All Things Considered. So with that, welcome our distinguished panel. And I'm going to now turn it right over to our, our renowned Civil War historian, Dr. Alan Gelzo, who will explore the parallels between our current political cultural debates and those on the eve of the Civil War. Alan Gelzo, the floor is yours. Thank you, Angela. <clears throat> there is no civil calamity greater than the two words we have in view today. Not plague, not depression, not even war itself. And it is my earnest hope that no one listening to us will take those two words into their mouths with anything except a sense of horror and revulsion. Americans have endured one civil war, and though by the standards of civil conflicts in the world's history, ours was comparatively brief, only four years, 
Compared to the 20 years of the Taiping Rebellion in China in the 1850s and 60s, and the English Civil Wars of 1642 to 53, yet its costs were heart-stopping. 750,000 dead, maimed, unaccounted for, a federal veterans pension list so big that for a half century afterwards, it was the single largest item in the federal budget. We must never let those two words pass our lips lightly, or even worse, seriously. And yet they are on our lips. A year after the 2016 presidential election, an editor for the Wall Street Journal put the question to me. Are we headed for civil war? A Rasmussen poll in 2018 showed that 31% of those surveyed believe that it's likely that the United States will experience a second civil war sometime in the next five years. Another poll this past October placed that number at 61%, and 52% admitted to stockpiling necessary goods in the event of an eruption. What gives substance to the expectation that civil war is in our future is the sense that Americans now seem to belong not just to different political parties, but to different political regimes. That divergence began in the long run in the 1970s. And with each succeeding decade, the fissures have become wider and wider until the two national political parties now represent utterly incommensurate views of American life. We cannot even seem to agree on what year marks the American founding. The intrusion into the Capitol on January 6th only seemed to heighten the sense of impending conflict. No wonder people are asking, how long can we continue if this is how we instinctively respond to political division? Yet, serious as this moment is, I do not despair of it, nor do I think its outcome will be civil war. This is why. First, for civil war to succeed, by which I mean not end in someone's victory, but simply become an ongoing struggle for an extended period of time, each side in the war requires a contiguous landmass to act as its base of support. Now that, of course, is what happened in our civil war of 1861 to 65. The 11 states that formed the Brigaway Southern Confederacy all shared common boundaries and a substantial seacoast open to the world. That is not the situation today. Although we like to color the map of the states, blue on the coastal edges and red in the vast heartland, every red state has substantial nodes of blue. Every blue state has wide swaths of red. Our political polarization is severe, but its actual geography is modeled in a way which does not indicate the likelihood of outright civil war. Second, any attempt to settle matters by civil war must come to quick grief on the question of how much violence can actually be summoned, because that is what civil war is about. Although some factions enjoy boasting about how well-armed they are, their armaments are dangerous mostly to deer, raccoons, and the isolated human victim. In the event of a full-scale insurrection, none of these paramilitary wannabes would last very long against drones, armored personnel carriers, and rocket-propelled grenade launchers. 
Some may entertain fantasies of the militia at Lexington and Concord facing down the British regulars, but that was because both the Massachusetts militia and British regulars were armed only with equivalent smoothbore muskets. There is no such equivalence when it comes to modern warfare. Untrained mobs are simply not in any way likely to offer anything but casualty lists. When opposed by the weapons in our National Guard armories or by our professional military. Imagine not Concord Bridge, rather Kent State. Neither of these considerations, sadly, means that we are guaranteed avoidance of serious civil unrest. And in the current climate of mutual hatred and accusation, we may see three examples of intense civil unrest. The first would be political. Should a federal executive and legislature not be able to restrain itself from passing laws which state legislatures will then refuse to obey? We call this nullification, following the pattern of South Carolina, which 190 years ago attempted to nullify congressionally imposed tariffs. And state legislatures have, in fact, been practicing nullification for some time in the form of marijuana normalization, sanctuary cities, and so forth, and without any serious penalty. But the practical effect of widespread nullification would be little short of anarchy and attempting to cure a problem by fostering a disease. Another possibility for civil unrest may emerge socially in the creation of no-go areas, similar to Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, by partisans of both the right and the left. Finally, serious civil unrest might take the form of personal violence, such as Timothy McVeigh's bombing of the Alfred Murrah Federal Office Building in Oklahoma City in 1995, or the attempted assassination of Representative Stephen Scalise in 2017. And it's worth remembering that McVeigh achieved his evil goal through something as simple as a truck full of fertilizer. And that cannot give much comfort to those who think that violence is only the plaything of guns. I describe these possibilities with a sinking heart. I do not nevertheless describe them because I expect them as a livelihood or a likelihood for all of the polarization we see in public life, poll after poll shows that ordinary Americans do not see themselves in the Manichaean terms of our politicians and media. We are now a more racially integrated society than we have ever been. Interracial marriages now stand at 17% of all marriages. One in 10 children born in the United States has parents of different races. Almost half of America's suburbs are ethnically diverse. More Americans identify themselves as political independents than ever before. More than 10% of the American electorate was born somewhere else and is glad to be here. Now is the moment for all Americans, conservative and liberal, left and right, Democrat and Republican, to step back from whatever brink they imagine looms before them, to lay aside the temptation to provocation. Now is the point on which we should turn and realize 
that a world is watching us, either in hope that this last best hope of humanity will not fail, or in anticipation of rejoicing in its self-destruction. I know that I will not be the friend of anyone who cries havoc. My fellow citizens, you must not be either. Let all talk of civil war be of a historical curiosity. And let us rather go forward in our united strength. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gelzel. I mean, perspective and information is so empowering. And I really hope that if you came on this call with a certain level of anxiety about the word civil war, that you are feeling more confident that tension and polarization doesn't mean the civil war. And so we want to invite Dr. Sam Gregg um, to now talk to us about the competing economic visions now and, and how they are playing and fueling the deep divisions. And again, Dr. Gilzel's gotten us from talking about civil war to division. So Dr. Gregg, let's talk about those economic visions that are creating deep divisions within our country. Well, thank you very much, Angela. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be following uh, Professor Guelzo as well. I'm here, of course, to talk about some of the economic divisions <clears throat> that mark our current polity. For some historical perspective, it's worth remembering that the United States has been characterized by deep debates about economic issues right from the beginning of the Republic. Uh, those of you who are to study some economic history will know that right at the begin very beginning of the Republic, there were those who saw the future of America as one of industrial capitalism, and they were associated with people like Alexander Hamilton, but there are others who saw America as having an agrarian future, who saw America as a land of freeholders living on farms and, and essentially pursuing an agrarian lifestyle. And they were associated with people like Thomas Jefferson. In the founding period and in, into the 19th century, we saw arguments, intense arguments, both politically and constitutionally, about whether America should have a national bank. Then, of course, during the Civil War and leading up to the Civil War, there was a marked difference between the southern economy of the southern states, that being one heavily dominated by cotton, and the more industrial path taken by the northern states. I don't think there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mistake or coincidence that we see some differences emerging between north and south that reflected the different economic bases of the country. Uh, since the 1930s, there has been a persistent economic divide among Americans concerning the role of the state in the economy. On the one side, there have been programs such as the New Deal of Franklin and Roosevelt, the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson, against those who very much favor things like free trade and free markets. And the free trade subject reminds us, of course, that again, right from the very beginning of the Republic, there was a substantive difference between those who essentially thought of the American economy in protectionist terms and those who thought about the economy in free trade terms. What's interesting about some of these economic divisions is that they have not fallen neatly down party political lines. Economic debates in the United States have crisscrossed these lines, 
even to the extent of actually dividing political parties against themselves. Uh, we saw this in the 1930s with the Republican Party. Uh, we saw this also in the 1990s with the debates about NAFTA. NAFTA, many of you will recall, was a treaty, effectively a type of economic treaty that was supported in Congress by essentially half the Republican Party, more or less half the Democratic Party, and opposed by half the Republican Party and half the Democratic, uh, D Democratic Party. What's interesting about these political divisions is that they often fall less along party political lines and they tend to track the regional nature of economic development in the United States. So when you're looking to understand why a Democrat or a Republican line up on the same side when it comes to economic issues, it often has much more to do with the type of country, part of the country that they represent and what industry happens to be most prominent in their particular electorate or state. Today, of course, we see many economic divides in the United States. Uh, most obviously, I think we see a divide between the what's often called Rust Belt states, often seen as very characteristic of the Midwest, against the two coasts, the West Coast, which obviously has a very strong tech industry, and the East Coast, particularly the Northeast Coast, which is seen as the political and financial center of the country. We have longstanding divisions between export-orientated industries and those which are primarily focused upon selling to American consumers. We see blue-collar America and the manufacturing part of the economy lining up in many respects against the tech industry and the financial sector. Another division, of course, is major Democrat-dominated big cities, in which I think it's fair to say there's a fair amount of crony capitalism that prevails, versus suburban and rural areas where that type of political economy is somewhat less evident. We see economic debates surrounding questions of immigration. Much of the business community wants and needs more labor. This raises concerns about issues associated with illegal immigration, but also we see issues ar arising around this concerning wages and wage levels and the wages of native-born Americans. In more recent times, we've seen a major divide open up in America between those parts of the economy which are relatively pandemic resistant and those parts of the economy that have turned out to be very vulnerable to pandemics. Good example of this, of course, is the hospitality industry, which has proved to be incredibly vulnerable to this particular problem. Whereas other industries like the tech industry and to a certain extent education have proved somewhat more resistant to the pandemic in terms of their capacity to function. We also see some significant generational divides opening up. Uh, it's no secret that poll after poll shows that Americans below the age of 30, a slight majority, have a favorable view of socialism. Now, they're often confused when they're asked to define what socialism is. They often think of it in terms of equality or greater equality. But that is a significant generational divide that has opened up between young Americans and those above the age of 30 and 35. I think there's another generational divide reflects uh, what you might call those whose economic horizons have been primarily determined by 
living in a post-financial crisis world, as opposed to those whose formative experiences of economic life were in a pre-financial crisis world. It's not, it's not a mistake, I think, that large numbers of younger Americans have grown up with a somewhat skeptical view of markets and capitalism, because for many of them, those things are vividly associated with the 2008 financial crisis. Overshadowing all this and dividing Americans is a political and economic question, and that is the economic and political challenge that is represented by China. China is clearly an economic challenge insofar as it is now uh, America's number one competitor in the world politically, but also economically. No one is really disputing that. The real question is, how do we deal with this particular problem? There are those who believe that economic engagement has to be part of any engagement with China and that it is foolish to walk away from an economic market of 1.2 billion people. Others, however, say that it is a mistake and potentially problematic, to say the least, to be reliant for certain goods and products upon a country that is ruled by a regime that is clearly hostile to American strategic and political interests. So what are some of the future challenges that around which some of these divisions are going to continue to be perpetuated? Well, obviously dealing with China is going to be one of them. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we will not see, I suspect, too much change between the Trump and Biden administrations when it comes to how they're approaching the subject of China. There's been a move away from the idea that everything about China is wonderful and there's much more suspicion that crisscrosses political lines about China's interests and its agenda. But economically dealing with this is something that Americans continue to be divided about. Another future challenge, I think, is how does one remake the case for free markets and capitalism to large numbers of people who have a very different economic experience of the world compared to those people who grew up, for example, in the 1970s, where there was mass inflation, Keynesian stagnation, and experienced the type of economic liberation, some might call it, that was apparent and became very widespread during the 1980s, during the Reagan revolution. The difficulty is, of course, is that you, we can't pretend it's the 1980s anymore, and we can't use the rhetoric and language of the 1980s anymore because we have people grown up in a world who have no memory of what that period was like and who have no memory of what it was like to live before some of those economic changes. Now, some of this, I think, could be quite depressing, but here I'd like to close with some grounds for optimism. Firstly, America remains, by most survey standards, the most entrepreneurial country in the world. And entrepreneurship, I think, has long been part of America's economic culture. And as long as that remains central to America's economic culture, there is grounds for optimism, for growth, for increasing GDP over time, and our ability to make sure that America remains competitive in the global economy. Second, America remains the world's financial center. That's the great gift that was given to us by Alexander Hamilton right at the beginning of the United States. 
And finance is a major part of the global economy now. And as long as America remains the number one country in that regard, there are many reasons to be optimistic. Thirdly, uh, America's institutional foundations when it comes to the economy are mostly sound. Rule of law is more or less observed. Private property rights remain relatively strong. Some of these things may change over the next four years. We don't know yet. But what is clear is that these fundamentals, these institutional fundamentals that we take for granted, but which are absent from countries just south of the Rio Grande, as long as these things remain solid, we have reasons to be optimistic. Fourthly, America has mastered major economic challenges in the past. America has not gone down the path of countries like Argentina. It has not gone down the path of European, Western European stagnation. It almost happened in the 1970s, but America did turn around. And that led to a period of unparalleled growth in, in the American economy for a number of decades. Fifthly and lastly, socialism and social democracy remain highly unpopular among most Americans. Yes, there is a problem. There is a challenge with younger Americans when it comes to those particular issues, but more or less most Americans have an instinctive dislike and distrust of people who are openly articulating socialism so much so that it's hard even for many uh, left-leaning members of the Democratic Party to sound too social democratic. So in that ex to that extent, I think that as long as there is a sense among Americans that there's something highly problematic economically, morally, and politically with socialism, we have some grounds for optimism. But thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing more during the discussion. Thank you, Dr. Gregg. Um, that, that's very encouraging as you've outlined where these divisions are, are falling. And I know we're feeling that even across our families. So again, if you've got questions, please lodge them in, in the Q&A box so that we can get your question into the discussion. We wanna turn our attention now to, to Dr. LaConte, who's going to frame the debate within the historic struggle for freedom in the West. So Dr. LaConte, give us, pull us back and, and let us look at this as a conversation about freedom in the West. Thanks so much, Angela. Thank you, my colleagues. Some of you, you may have noticed in the promotional material uh, for this uh, panel, it was described as an all-star panel. And I always wanted to be on an all-star panel. I just have to say, I'm not the brightest light in this starry firmament, but here we go. I'll take a crack at it. Look, the, the struggle to build a just and democratic society, the the contest for human freedom, it's an old one. Uh, and it doesn't always turn out well, as Dr. Gelzo uh, reminded us. Let's go back even further, though, than the Civil War. Go back to the middle decades of the first century BC, a coastal town in southern Italy called Formia, uh, north of Naples. And we're in the villa of one of Rome's uh, greatest statesmen, Marcus Tilius Cicero. Cicero, he'd spent his life defending Rome's concept of Republican government with its Senate and its system of uh, checks and balances. But when Cicero, Cicero wrote his most important works, The Republic and the Laws, the age of the Caesars was already upon him. He knew that the decay of Rome's political institutions, what he called the enemy within, had been raging for many years. Let's rehearse the list. 
worldly senators blocked political and economic reforms. There were massive public works programs with no sensible scheme to finance them. The urban proletariat, not to mention the farmers and the workers, felt alienated from the political system. Uh, there were great economic disparities wor worsened by a crippling tax system. There were deep political divisions with lots of conspiracy theories floating around. Mob violence was on the rise. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Let me just add as well that the city of Rome, a cosmopolitan center of about a million people, everybody complained about the traffic. So, you know, some things never change, right? Well, for Cicero, the great symptom of decline was Rome's crisis in political leadership. The crisis in political leadership by rejecting a universal moral law and its ability to both restrain vice and inspire virtue, Rome's leaders behaved as though their private lives bore no relationship to the public good. They were squandering their Republican inheritance, according to Cicero. Let me read a few lines. Long before living memory, our ancestral way of life produced outstanding men, and those excellent men preserve the old way of life in the institutions of their forefathers. Our generation, however, he says, after inheriting our political organization like a magnificent picture, now fading with age, not only neglected to restore its original colors, but did not even bother to ensure it retained its basic form. And then he closes, of this great tragedy, we are not only bound to give a description, we must somehow defend ourselves as if we were arraigned on a capital charge. So yeah, trouble in River City over there. We're gonna come back to Cicero before we're done. The point is the American founders knew this history. They studied it. They understood the challenges of building and sustaining a just and democratic society. They looked for wisdom wherever they could find it because they knew that the odds of success of preserving a republic over a vast territory well, they were stacked against them. In the words of social thinker Oz Guinness, they sought to study history in order to defy history. The threat of factions, factions, friends, and the relentless pull of selfish ambition. These were not hypothetical problems uh, for the founders, but Republican government, government by consent of the governed offered the best hope of checking ambition and preserving both freedom and order. There were no guarantees of success then or now. Listen to the founders in the Federalist Papers. A dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on their government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. There's a phrase, auxiliary precautions. Before we name them, let's remember for a moment the crisis moment confronting the men who met in Philadelphia 1787. There had been acts of violence and threats of a political coup leading up to and right throughout the, the Constitutional Convention, Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, the Newburgh Conspiracy. When the framers gathered to produce a constitution for the new nation, they faced political divisions that threatened to collapse the entire enterprise into failure. What strikes the historian, I have to say, is the stunning combination of realism and hope realism and hope among the founders. Listen to Madison in the Federalist number 37. It's impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it what they're, what they're accomplishing, not to perceive in it a finger of that almighty hand 
which has been so frequently extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. And then just a few lines later, Madison says this, the history of almost all the great councils held among mankind for reconciling their differences is a history of factions, contentions, and disappointments, and may be classed among the most dark and degraded pictures which display the infirmities and depravities of the human character. How about that for realism? And then another line, the founders expected, quote, a torrent of angry and malignant passions will be set loose. They expected it, and yet they were determined to persevere, and they did. And they did that by combining, I would argue, moral leadership with sound political principles. They did it by producing a written constitution that reflected both the tragedy and the dignity of the human condition. So the framers devised these auxiliary precautions, as they called it. They designed a national government that puts hard limits on itself, on its powers, in order to respect the sovereign rights of the states. They devised checks and balances within that federal system, the separation of powers, to prevent the consolidation and abuse of political power. And they fashioned a Bill of Rights to safeguard the natural, universal rights and freedoms of every citizen. All of these constitutional remedies were intended to help us to navigate our political divisions and to preserve freedom. And friends, all of them are still at hand. So the great responsibilities in self-government, well, they lie before us. So let's go back to Cicero for a moment. His long struggle to preserve Rome's Republic, it did come to an end. December 7th, 43 BC, at the age of 64, Cicero has retired from politics, but he's continued to denounce the forces tearing apart Rome's political and civic life. And that puts him at odds with the establishment. He's a gadfly. Soldiers sent by Mark Antony arrive at his seaside villa in Formia. As the assassins approached him with swords drawn, Cicero reportedly displayed a calm defiance. There is nothing proper about what you are doing, soldier, he said, but try to kill me properly. Well, they cut his throat. And for all practical purposes, when Cicero fell, the Republic fell with him. But the point is the founders took note. They took note. They learned from Rome's failure. They were always conscious of what President Lincoln called the silent artillery of time. The silent artillery of time, the natural drift of political societies is toward corruption, decay, and degeneration. Listen to Madison on this. It's vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust these clashing interests and render them all subservient to the public good. Enlightened statesmen, he says, will not always be at the helm. Can I get an amen on that? Our problems are real, friends, and they can't be wished away. We know that. But we have in our hands, in our hands, an essential part of the remedy. Listen to James Mason from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, that no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people, but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles, he says. Yeah, a return to first principles. That's the task of the statesman and the patriot. There are no guarantees of success, but... As Angela suggested at the outset, the way forward demands that we look back. 
back to the Constitution and its devotion to the ideals of human freedom. Ronald Reagan, who had probably a greater attachment to the Constitution and the Declaration, I think any president in a hundred years, he put it this way, the torch of liberty is hot, he said. The torch of liberty is hot. It warms those who hold it high. It burns those who try to extinguish it. So friends, it's time to lift up the torch of liberty and bring a measure of light and hope in a world of shadows and fog. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Oh, how just so powerful. You know, it is amazing how time just runs out when we're having these great discussions. And so what I'm gonna do, gentlemen, is we're just diving into the, the Q&A. Um, folks are really concerned about the polarization in the country. And it seems like they're thinking about, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville and how he marveled at what he called the science of association, the American habit of citizens coming together to solve common problems. And so we've got a host of questions. Um, let's just start with this one from Dency Rivera. He asks, do you believe that the level of unrest in the country has worsened by the reduction of presence of the Republic and the increase of democracy? He goes on to list the passage of the 17th Amendment, removing the selection of senators by state legislators and giving the power to popular vote, uh, creating essentially a second house of representatives. Uh, Alan Gelza, let's go to you first on, on this. Well, that's taking things back more than a century. And I don't know that anyone in 1912, when the 17th Amendment uh, was uh, brooded about, looked upon that as a do or die moment in the life of the Republic. There's also the larger question that the question opposes, uh, is democracy itself the problem inside of our republic? Well, you do not need to have a democracy to have a civil war. Rome, as Joe Leconte was laying out for us, uh, the Roman Republic was torn to bits by civil war, and yet it was not a democracy. The Athenians, of course, were a democracy. They likewise fell prey to civil war. They were not a republic. So there's not a necessary connection between democracy, a Republican form of government and civil war. Civil war is, so to speak, um, an equal opportunity calamity. And it will afflict monarchies, it will afflict dictatorships, it will afflict republics, it will afflict democracies whenever the worthwhile sense that people have, that their voices are being listened to and their interests are being served, whenever that fails, that becomes the seedbed of civil unrest. And when that is not abated or satisfied, then it becomes civil war. That is what we must avoid. So I don't have a yes or no answer to that question. I'm not sure that there is a yes or no answer, but it does make us reflect on how various the causes of dysfunction may be and what vigilance the preservation of a republic, a democratic republic, calls forth from each of us who are its citizens. Okay. Well, Joe, I, I, I think that this line of thinking kind of um, is synergized with the next person's question. And 
Uh, he says, John Adams said that our constitution was made only for moral and religious people. Since today, our nation has been on an ever steeper downhill slide in morals and belief in God. So Jill, give us your thoughts about what you think um, the end result will be uh, with this kind of moral religious conversation in a downward slide. Well, it's hard, thank you for that question. It's hard to uh, try to predict in the future where it's all going. I wanna emphasize the choices we actually have to make in the present. I do agree that there's been this loss of uh, an attachment to those religious principles, transcendent ideals that uh, the founders assumed would undergird the Republic. There has been a loss of that and that helps to explain uh, some of the rancor right now. I'm developing a little bit of a theory here and I won't go on about it, but disillusionment. I think there's a great amount of disillusionment that has grown out of utopian ideas about what kind of society we can produce in the first place. That can be a problem on the right, on the political right, but I think it's a much greater problem on the political left. Utopian delusions, and people are embittered because they're not achieving the perfectly just society they now want. What the founders had was a sober kind of realism. I would argue, let's call it Christian realism a belief in the capacity for human virtue and self-government, but also a very sober view of our limitations. So I think we gotta get back to that and we have the potential to do that. I'll, I'll leave it there and let others speak. Okay, so Sam, I wanna bring you right in here because mm -hmm. in you know, looking at how we do what Joe was talking about, we've got a question from Gerald Fickenshaw saying, you know, how much is education in public schools responsible for creating the current divide? Um, that seems grounded in, in ignorance. And a follow-up question from another uh, a participant, and how do we actually re-educate America's youth to love their own country and to value the rights afforded to them by being an American citizen? A citizen? Well, thank you for the questions, the two questions. Well, <clears throat> there's many things that can be said here. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason why some of us do not send our children to public schools precisely because, and I'm one of them, and that's precise, one of the reasons is precisely because um, people lack confidence that they're going to, their children are going to be exposed to an understanding of the United States and its history that's true to that history, which is not a perfect history, but it's a history which has a great deal of nobility about it, a great deal of a story to tell about human achievement. Uh, and instead, they don't hear that. What they hear is that the United States is conceived in racism. We see, for example, in some parts of the country, uh, something that the Heritage Foundation is trying to push back against, which of course is the, frankly, the infiltration of the 1619 project into school curricula. And anyone who's read those documents knows very clearly that this is not history. This is ideological indoctrination. So there's a major problem in the way that uh, much history is taught in much of the United States about the United States in schools run by local state governments. So what do we do about that? Well, I think in one case, I think it's important for parents to take some responsibility for forming their own children in the responsibilities of what it means to be a citizen. And that includes explaining to them and helping them to understand something of the history of the United States and something of that, that history, which as I said, is not all light. There are dark spots in that history, which we should acknowledge. But I think parents should be taking more responsibility in this regard. 
I think they should be willing to go to school board meetings and ask, why is my child being taught that the United States is the great Satan? I'd expect that in Iran. I would not expect that in a state like Virginia or wherever. So I think there's a, there's a great deal of citizens' grassroots action that can take place to try and push back in these particular areas. And I think also, I think it's important to understand that when we're talking about history, we need to distinguish between history as the search for truth about history and history as I think it's often conceived today, which is trying to produce a narrative that's designed not to get a truth, but to try and influence what's happening politically here and now. So parents taking more responsibility for the children's education, uh, being in fact somewhat confrontational with schools and school boards about what's being taught and what's not being taught in schools about American history. I think those are some very practical things that, that citizens can do in this, in this country to try and redress what is clearly a major problem in the way that America, America is being taught to understand itself right now. You know, it's it's interesting, Sam and and, and Alan and, and Joe. I, I'm I'm looking at this one response um, from a participant that says, as a middle class American, I feel completely powerless to have any effect on which direction we're headed. And I want us to speak into the feeling of being powerless. I mean, Sam, you just talked about how parents can be empowered, but this participant is also really leaning in on a conversation about um, social, socialism and, and ultimately um, forming into communism. Alan, do you wanna talk a little bit about this, you know, from the academy of what you're seeing there and, and how we can help people no matter where they are in the socioeconomic stratosphere, if you will, not to feel powerless. We sometimes feel powerless because we are a nation of 330 million people. And you can feel like a very small fish in a very big fishbowl if you reflect simply on the numbers. But we are not powerless because there are so many different levels at which political opportunity and intellectual opportunity take place. There are the levels of our neighbors. There are the levels of our schools. There are the levels of our municipalities. All of these are small scale worlds and they are real worlds. This is one of the things Tocqueville thought was so remarkable about the United States and it still is, that we are a nation of municipalities. We are a nation of small scale face-to-face -face organizations. We are a nation of voluntary self-help. We are churches, we are associations. We are even bowling and baseball leagues. In each one of those things, our personal roles are greatly magnified because we are acting on a smaller stage. And then the influence we actually exercise in those small scale places becomes something which is magnified through those organizations, through those voluntary societies. And it spreads so that the voice of one person, which taken simply by themselves seems to be so insignificant, actually has enormous impact one after the other, provided that voice does not stay at home and speak only to itself. Speak to one's neighbors, engage them, not, not in confrontation, not in provocation. 
speak, speak as a citizen to another citizen, speak in your leagues, speak in your associations, speak in your churches, speak in your organizations to each other, and then watch that process not only turn situations around, but vindicate the very idea of how a republic is supposed to operate. That sounds like it is asking that you take very small steps towards the achievement of very big goals, but the achievement of very big goals always begins with those small steps. In 1838, Abraham Lincoln delivered what was really his first major political speech. And he was reflecting on a wave of mob violence, on lynchings, a moment when the country seemed to be coming apart in terms of political division. And his recommendation to people was, I hope, very similar to what I have said. He said in that lecture that we should always emphasize the importance of the obedience we owe to the laws. He said, let that reverence for the laws be lisped by children on their mother's laps. Let their mothers inculcate that love of law and liberty in their children. Let that fan out from there. And then, then you have a real renovation, a real awakening of Republican principle, because it will not come from the top down. In a republic, that would be a contradiction in terms. In a republic, sovereignty and every other living aspect of public life comes from the bottom up. Resolve to begin there. Resolve to begin at one space. And when you take the step through that one space, you will find other spaces that open to you. Beautiful. You know, we are almost out of time and I want to give each of you an opportunity to just give us a 30 second close out. I think people just are yearning for just openness and honesty during this time. Um, we know that if a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. So in your 30 second close, just give us some encouragement and how you think we can walk through now under a new president, President Biden's administration, with these economic debates and the divisions that we are still walking and trying to walk out of. I'm gonna start with you, Sam, over to you, Joe, and then close out with you, Alan. Well, thank you, Angela. Uh, the first thing I would say is that to remember debate and division is not new. Uh, I would like to think that in a republic like the United States, you would actually have debates and disagreements about very important things, whether the subject is trade policy or the interpretation of a particular amendment to the Constitution. It's quite normal to have these sorts of debates and discussions. So I think thinking about things in that way is helpful. I also think, however, that one way forward, and that this is a uniquely American thing, is to go back and look at some of the principles that we've talked about today that are so beautifully and powerfully expressed in the founding, in the lives of the founders, and in founding documents. If America is to be true to itself, is to undergo a true renewal in a particularly American way, we have resources, powerful intellectual and cultural resources 
which I think America can turn to, to renew itself in a way that frankly, most other countries find very hard to do. Thank you, thank you. Joe? Yes, excellent, Sam. Let me just play off those remarks. You know, I keep thinking about a line uh, from the Catholic writer, G.K. Chesterton. He was making a case for Christianity and he put it this way, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. Chesterton, of course, was talking about wholehearted commitment uh, to the teachings of Jesus. I think a similar observation, though, could be made about the American creed. Now, the American creed is not a religious creed, don't misunderstand me, but the concept of Republican self-government, right? Government by consent of the governed, it does require a wholehearted commitment, as my colleagues have been suggesting, a commitment to govern ourselves, right? A commitment to we the people, not to the state not to the smiling Leviathan, because despotism, as we all know, despotism is the easy way. It's the easy way, it's the road most traveled, but freedom, as the founders conceived of it, freedom, that is the harder path, friends, we all know that, but it does offer the best hope of a society characterized by justice as well as mercy. And so to quote from Lincoln, I think the whole family of man has a stake in the outcome. Alan, close us out. <laughs> Angela, I have been a student of Abraham Lincoln for many, many years, as many people know, and I can find no better words to close with than the words he used at the close of his inaugural, first inaugural address, when once again the nation faced the stark prospect of civil war. I am loath to close, Lincoln said. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Well said. I just want to thank each of you um, for sharing your insights on the struggle over the meaning of America and putting in perspective when you put the two words together, civil war. Um, thank you to our audience for joining us for this important conversation. If you work on the Hill at a think tank or just have questions, please contact us using the information listed on the screen and we'd love to continue the conversation. Immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey and we hope you'll complete that survey so that we can get ideas about what you care about and how to bring more information to the public square. To see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org events. And again, on behalf of our president, Keiko's James, thank you from the entire Heritage family for joining us and have a great day.